0: Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street Podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV Podcast, and check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds.
1: The following podcast
2: contains explicit language hello and welcome to sex lives the new york magazine sex podcast i'm david wallace wells and with me today is new york magazine sex columnist maureen o'connor hey maureen hey she's all the way in mexico city via skype Also here is Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. We've got a great show for you this week, but first we want to remind you about the Sex Live's voicemail box. You can call us at 646-494-3590. We like to end our episodes with answers to our questions of the week. This week, you'll hear from the guy who was puzzled by Allison asking why she's not getting laid. Truthfully, I have not really had that problem, but my ex-girlfriend says that I am... Not at all particular.
1: Wait, but I didn't just ask where I'm not getting laid. I, I guess we'll get there. It wasn't personalized. It was a personal, geez.
2: <laughs> Before that, however, we're going to um, do our interview with Tristan Taramino, porn filmmaker and sex educator. She actually used those as one and the same job. She's also an author, podcaster, and speaker about sex. We had a great talk about how sex is taught in schools as opposed to how it perhaps should be taught in schools, among a bunch of other stuff. So we'll get to all that in a moment. But first, I think we want to talk about this, um, like, I don't know, how would you describe it? It's not it's like a definitely a passionate article that you wrote, <laughs> Allison, about Amy Schumer's new boyfriend as an archetype of everything contemporary women want to desire.
1: Right. So Amy Schumer has this new boyfriend, Ben Hanish, who is a furniture maker, like a hipster, like attractive, hot carpenter slash furniture maker with a line of I think people descri- described it as like unique custom high-end furniture um, which got me thinking like immediately that furniture maker is the chosen profession of all like fantasy boyfriends because everybody universally when you say like oh he's a carpenter or oh he's a furniture maker like their eyes like roll back in their head like they're savoring a delicious meal or something or at least I do
2: is that about like is it about Working with their hands?
1: I mean, maybe. I don't know. So my friend has a husband who's a furniture maker, and he's just like the most attractive man I've ever met. So maybe that's where it started for me.
3: But I feel like it's such a universal.
1: <sighs> that, that person right? will be
2: listening. and Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm
1: so well, sorry, so 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 friend. I was
3: going to say, I mean... It's such an archetype to the point, I, I don't understand why this is, right? Like the ultimate dreamy guy in Sex in the City, Aiden, is a right. carpenter. The dreamy guy in Girls is a carpenter. And Magic Mike also right. doubled as a carpenter. And that's how we know he was a nice, gentle man. There's something weird about this kind of like rugged and yet also kind of domestic thing. Right. I do wonder about this because it does seem like the 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 gentle carpenter is such a weirdly fetishized thing. <laughs>
2: Do you think it's more than, like, the chef? Because I feel like the chef plays a similar role.
3: I don't know, because
1: I feel like now the chef is all, like, hot-headed bad boy when you think of chefs, you know? But, like, a carpenter is always so, like, reasonable and kind and just wants to build you things for your home or for, like, a home for you. It's very comforting, I feel like. It's, like, a nurturing vibe.
2: But then you discovered, like— did I discover it for you? Like this horrible Instagram photo that this guy, this yeah, particular you, you guy. Yeah, you
1: brought me <laughs> crashing down to earth like a day after I'd written that article praising him. David, why don't you share what you did?
2: Well, there, some. I guess it wasn't actually on his Instagram, but it's some someone else's on which he appeared. He was like basically in blackface. Yeah. What?
3: <laughs>
2: <sighs> I mean, I guess it was the function of a filter. It wasn't like he was wearing makeup, I think.
1: Oh. No, it looked like oh. he was wearing makeup. Jezebel said it was blackface. So. It's pretty close, it and like, then yeah.
2: he he captioned it like, "Black or white." Yeah, was that what the caption yeah. was? Like,
1: hashtag bad boys. Hashtag black or white.
3: Oh wait, I'm googling it right now.
2: But like, yeah, I'm, no, do it right now and tell us how awful not, you think it is.
1: I'm not saying. Ben, oh my god, you guys! Oh, what the god. fuck? <laughs> okay, I'm not saying Ben Hanish is like the like the ideal man. You're saying was,
2: that your friend's husband is the ideal. Basically, man. yeah. If she's
3: listening, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I don't. Even understand what's happening in this interview. I, <laughs> I mean, one guy's bad. got a bald cap on. Is this like Blue Man Group potentially? It's black and white, right? I mean, like black and white, like tones of gray. Like the, the filter is like black and white. Has one. no colors in I, it. I don't know. And thus, who knows what could be happening here? Not all
1: carpenters have like hidden black face photos in their past. I can still dream about this, guys.
3: Well, that took a so, turn. I think we've discovered that the ultimate boyfriend is a carpenter who is not racist. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if, if you can find If one. you can
3: find that, yes.
2: So we've been talking about um, Allison's great piece about um, these strange fetish for modern hipster urban carpenters. Now let's move on to our interview with Tristan Taormino. So we're joined now by Tristan Taromino, an author, filmmaker, sex educator, and sex podcaster. She wrote the book Opening Up, which we've talked about before on the show, as well as many others. And we're completely thrilled to have her. Tristan, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: The first thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, we're we're sort of less kink insiders than you are, although we just had an offline conversation about which of us like ranking our, how <laughs> close to kink we all are. Um, Did
1: we rank it? I thought we were just...
2: <laughs> I think I think you came out on top, Maureen. But um, good
3: Thanks, include guys. me in Thanks. this conversation,
1: <laughs> by the way. Is that how low-ranking I am?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but over the last year or so, we keep coming back to the idea that, to us, um, kink seems to be having a sort of a moment, like a little bit of a, you know, coming out into the sunlight, mm-hmm. people talking about it more and more comfortable in mainstream culture and... Um, I wondered, first of all, if it feels that way to you as someone who has a longer history with it, and also what that means for the sort of community as a whole, if the things that were once a little um, underground and off the grid have started to seem a little more above ground and on the grid.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really all started with Fifty Shades of Grey. So on the one hand, it's such a bad book. And there, <laughs> there are such incredible writers out there who are writing some of the most brilliant, erotic BDSM fiction that there ever was. I mean, like Laura Antonou, who has the Marketplace series, and Cecilia Tan has a new seri- series out. Molly Weatherfield wrote two books um, that were just fantastic. So I feel like I want people to have better taste in their (laughs) literature, fair, right? So there's, so but also
2: sort of like whatever works for you, right?
0: Well, there's Fifty Shades of Grey, like the book which I hate. However, Fifty Shades of Grey, the phenomenon, is a good thing and is undeniable and cannot be ignored. And so all the things that have grown up around the book, like people talking about kink at the grocery store or people going into sex shops for the very first time and saying, hey, I want to buy a blindfold. All of that is super, super exciting because everyone in the sex education world knows that once this book hit, a whole slew of people that we had previously been unable to reach were suddenly coming to our workshops going to these sex positive stores um, finding Fet life whatever they were doing they were they were taking it beyond the book and incorporating it into their own sex lives and asking questions about it and that to me is, is great I mean it just it just provides people with more options frankly
2: It's interesting to hear you talk about it, you know, so much in terms of that book. I think the way that we've talked about it um, among ourselves has been mostly about the sort of the effect of the Internet and how that fosters um, communities. And then also just sort of general liberalization of sex, like over the last, you know, since the sexual revolution, basically. I guess I hadn't really thought about the book as like such a major event on that timeline.
0: I mean... Because there's something like 50 million people read it or bought it, yeah. it, it, it kind of is the major event. I mean, there's nothing else that has sort of captured the imagination of so many people and so many mainstream folks. But of course, the Internet has changed the world of kink, too, in that it's just so much easier for people to find community and to find each other. I mean, it used to be that if you were sort of sitting home alone and thinking, I have this really obscure fetish or turn on, and I don't think anyone else has it. And even if there is someone who has it, there's no one in my town or within 50 miles of where I live who has it. And then you get online and you're like, oh, my God, there's a support group. There's a munch. There's a chat. And, there's like and the dude
2: who con- lives upstairs is super into it. Yes,
0: and there's like three conference- you. conferences, you know, in major cities all over America celebrating this particular thing. And, you know, there's people who've written books about it. And, and you know, so, so it's like you, you can go online and pretty much figure out you're not alone almost instantly.
4: I keep waiting for the one person who can tell me the kink they had that they were totally alone in. Have you ever come across the kink that did not exist on the internet?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I mean, there's there there's so much diversity out there, and I've pretty much heard it all, seen it all, and done most of it. Does it
4: ever make you feel kind of jaded that there's some moment of kind of like, it's all out there, you know? Like, there's nothing new under the sun.
0: I sometimes feel jaded in that, you know, one of the ways that people get super turned on is by taboos, Mm -hmm. right? Things that are taboo in our culture and that are sort of shrouded in mystery or maybe danger or shame or guilt or, Mm -hmm. oh my God, that's so wrong. And I don't, there. There's not a lot of shame in my life, and yeah. there's not a lot of taboos. So the one thing that's pretty hard for me is it's 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 hard for me to construct a fantasy that's taboo, and the taboo itself will get me off.
4: Well, it's so funny. I was talking to a friend of mine. She's like, in order for something to be taboo, you have to invent, like, it will literally kill you. <laughs> that, like, there just aren't... I mean, where do you go to find the... Just continue finding taboos. This brings us to one of our favorite topics on this podcast, that incest is the final taboo that will never go away, and thus we must continually fantasize about incest once every other thing is completely acceptable.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, you can often look to porn. You know, like porn was ahead of the curve on anal sex. Porn Mm -hmm. was ahead of the curve on kink. And so often porn will explore these themes that society at large is not, quite ready for but of course they're extremely popular so we know they're ready for it but there's not a lot of public discussion about it Mm -hmm. and the incest genre in porn has gone nuts in the past like three years it's become one of the best-selling genres and there's entire studios now who have like a line of incest porn (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) when they never did before not five years ago not 10 years ago one thing that
4: fascinates me, um, Tristan, is that you've done sort of educational slash porn, um, I don't know, work that is, that is a little bit of both, it seems.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually consider all of my porn educational, uh-huh. although a, a big segment of it was me doing this particular line for Vivid called Vivid Ed, mm-hmm. where I did uh, a whole sex education line. We did 15 titles on everything from to cunnilingus, to pegging, to threesomes, and those are very explicitly educational. The point of them is to educate, and the whole way that they're structured is around education. They just happen to feature porn stars. Mm -hmm. But I think even the other work that I've done in porn, I've made a conscious effort just to show genuine chemistry and pleasure to show people negotiating their sexual fantasies to show people using lube and sex toys, warming up to penetration rather than Mm -hmm. just jamming it in. So I I feel like all of my porn has an educational component. How did you end up uh, working on that project
1: that's explicitly educational? I'm, I'm super interested in that myself. Well, that came off. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You know, I made two movies back in the late 90s, now I'm dating myself, um, which were based on my book, The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. So I made The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women, the movie. But it was kind of a combination of sex ed and gonzo, kind of hot porn. I really just thought I would make these two videos and then keep doing my sex education stuff and writing. And I, I never really pictured myself as like even a full-time or a part-time pornographer, but I came back in 2005 really wanting to do something different and I, this meeting with Vivid Entertainment, and I said, you know, I really want to do this reality series called Chemistry, and I was super, super into it, and they said, well, listen, Tristan, like, you're known for your sex education, like, that is, like, that is your whole world, so we want sex education from you. And I was like, well, can I do both? And they said yes. I felt like if I'm going to do sex education, I want to do it differently than what's been done already. And I wanted to really kind of like mix up the genre and put out these videos that had a particular vibe and signature that were my own, rather than kind of replicating what was already out there.
4: It's interesting because I think for um for my generation or people that grew up with the internet, I mean, probably the single most educational element of my sexual education was probably pornography, um, although it was not built to be educational necessarily, right. but I mean, that's like when you see, okay, that's what an erect dick looks like. That's what people do. So it struck me as a really modern approach, although I guess it also reminds me a little bit of, you know, back in the sort of like... Joy of sex type stuff, you know, that there were things that were sort of somewhere between education and titillation.
0: You know, I think that there's like a certain group of people that want to say, oh, my God, children and young adults are looking at porn and that's how they're learning things. And that's awful across the board. And I feel like, wait a second. Some of us are actually making educational porn that's explicitly educational. So you can't throw out like the entire genre and say it's all bad.
2: But probably there aren't many like 14 year olds who are watching your videos. Or do you think there are?
0: Well, I don't really want anyone under 18 to watch my videos because, you know, I'm a responsible pornographer. Um, But I think there are lessons to be gained in seeing any kind of porn that aren't all horrible. In other words, like you just brought up this point that like, that was the first time you saw an erect dick. And I, Mm -hmm. I hear this from people all the time, which is like, Oh, that's what a vulva looks like. Wow. That's what an uncut cock looks like. That's what penetration looks like that, you know? So, there are some basic things, which is that you can see people naked having sex. Mm-hmm. and that is like one of the only places that you can see that that is ultimately can be really illuminating for people but I mean I think like in the
4: same way that like I learned about romance by watching like Titanic, right? And I under you know like I think <laughs> that explains a lot more degree, <laughs> I understood that those weren't typical, you know boobs that I was seeing when I was saw, like, you know, whatever softcore porn I saw for the first time when I was young, in the same way that I understood that this was like an idealized version of romance or an idealized version of what it means to be a grown-up when I watch TV. But I think it's such a sort of myth when people assume that, like, a young person will see something, they're just going to think that's the way the world is supposed to be, um, or that the world will actually be like that, because I don't think that that's actually how people absorb media in general.
0: Precisely. That's why these anti-porn people, especially anti-porn feminists, they're giving no credit to the fact that people consume all these different forms of media. Like how many people right now are playing video games that involve guns who will never use a gun to kill anyone in their entire lifetime? Like a lot more than the people who will. Right. But I feel like there's this this constant barrage of of dialogue from anti-porn folks, which is that people are replicating what they see in porn and it's destroying all our sex lives. It's just not true. I feel -hmm. like the whole concept of normal sex is this loaded fantasy and fairy tale that doesn't exist. I know how people are having sex. Um, they tell me in explicit great detail and it's just not it doesn't line up with What we see in mainstream media.
2: Where do you think that negative fantasy comes from? Like if people if so many people feel like their sex lives don't match the sort of what they think of as normal or good Where where do they where do they get that idea?
0: I mean, I'm gonna squarely blame Hollywood for this and this is shifting now because the whole landscape of television and movies are are changing dramatically. But for the most part, mainstream representations of courtship, love, romance, sex, involve zero communication, no negotiation whatsoever. There are still like every movie I see involves people locking eyes and falling in bed together no communication necessary, totally ecstatic, simultaneous orgasms, um always revolving around intercourse for for straight people. So everyone who experiences something different than that and feels like they have to speak up or feels like they're like no 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 to the left or feels like intercourse doesn't get them off, everyone feels like okay, I'm not doing it right.
2: It seems like to you the communication part is like the the biggest part of the story that's left out of that narrative. Is that fair?
0: It's communication and the fact that a negotiation. Yeah. The, the whole definition of sex still re- revolves around penis-vagina intercourse. Like, that is sex. That's the culmination. That's what gives people orgasms. That's how people fuck. And it's not how people fuck, and it's not how a lot of women actually get off.
4: I mean, on the other hand, the lack of communication is, I think, probably accurate to the way a lot <laughs> of people lead their sex lives.
0: Yeah. But then that just, in my mind, leads to unsatisfying sex. Yeah. I just think that if you set someone up to, to think if you meet the right person, they're going to be able to just intuitively know how you like to be touched and what right. gives you pleasure and what your desires are, that is a setup for failure.
2: It's a bit of a double bind, I think, because a lot of people end up feeling that communication isn't all that sexy, right? In part because of this barrage of sort of um cultural sex education
0: it again it just promotes a lot of bad sex yeah if we could both normalize and eroticize the art of negotiation and sexual communication we would all be having better sex even sometimes dirty talk doesn't feel like an actual negotiation it's kind of like
1: um i don't know like like Kind of like a play talk In a way It's not like Always the most genuine Or actual instruction you
0: know? I don't know Maybe that's just like, Right it can be No I mean that is, Like some people Can do instruction Or say like What I really want you to do But they say it In a sexy voice and a sexy way So it can be both It can be like right. Informative And all the time That you're like Fucking you're asking you know, like Oh yeah do X, Y, Z No 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 seriously Do that like, like
1: Do that <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just saying that Right
0: there, there, may, there may need To be clarification like, You may want to spin in a story that involves like the entire neighborhood, but you don't actually want them at your front door, or you may actually want to invite them all over. You just have to clarify. I think. I think one thing I
4: always sort of have trouble with is that on one hand, it's like I totally you know that sort of explosion in people sort of talking about kink or learning about you know going to workshops and all such things. Um, particularly after sort of the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon. It's like, it's exciting because, you know, more people are discovering things they like. On the other hand, there is this element that you're like, but it's sort of dorkifies it in some way, you know, that like, all of a sudden we are losing sort of the feeling of the sort of like subterfuge or, or I don't know.
0: No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, You know, part of the reason that people get off on anal sex is the taboo around it, right? Right. And so people have asked me, like, now that anal sex has become... More acceptable, more talked about, more widely practiced I mean it's in Cosmo like every other month and they <laughs> every so, other page there's so like blase about it they're just like oh yeah anal sex whatever and I'm like you were you literally wouldn't even return my phone calls in the early 2000s um <laughs> you know what I mean so I I just I feel like so people are like are you worried that it's gonna sort of lose its edge or lose its like it's it's sort of dangerous quality dangerous in a kind of sexy way? First of all, I think it's it, it never is. For some people, that's just always going to sort of be with them. Yeah. And and I feel like I would take the demystification of sex over keeping it like shrouded in yeah. mystery or keeping it underground or keeping it inaccessible. I feel like if if there was a trade-off, I would say put it all out on the table, normalize it, because I still think we as humans are going to figure out ways to to turn on and to get off. And I want people to know more. I don't want them to know less. I mean, when you're talking about doing something with a part of your
4: body that you're not allowed to show in public, like there's always some element of, I don't know, either alienation or uncertainty about how to talk about it or what to do with it, right? Is it possible to have a completely shameless sexual culture?
0: I mean, that's a dream and a goal. (laughs) I mean, this makes me think of um, a friend of mine who's an amazing activist and has two kids. And her, like, 13 or 14-year-old daughter, said, she said, what do you want for your birthday? And she said, I want a vibrator. She's grown up in this house with a really sex-positive, progressive mom. Actually, Mm. she has three moms. And she has obviously explored masturbation and is like, hey, I've heard about this thing called a vibrator. And it's been talked about in these non-jokey ways or no, there are no shaming ways. And so I'm just going to come right out and say, I want a vibrator. If we can reverse some of the absence and sort of silence around sex education with our kids and if there's a whole new generation of parents who are committed to being sex positive and progressive that actually yeah like we can actually raise kids with way less shame than and and shift it generationally
2: Mm-hmm. It's kind of an amazing story, since I, I, I had my parents don't even know that I host this podcast. Um, <laughs> really, <same. laughs> I, I wonder about talking about sex ed. Is it possible to think about some kind of more institutional program where kids in high schools would watch videos, something like the ones that you've made, the educational ones that you've made? You know, obviously that's not going to happen anytime in the immediate future, but can we imagine a sort of a healthier and more explicit way of introducing these topics um, to kids before the age of 18? Do we think, like, is there, a, is there a medium-term future where you think that might be possible?
0: One of the things that's going on right now is that some kids are coming to, you know, their health class, their sex ed class at school and saying, I saw this thing in porn. What's that about? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, female ejaculation or prostate massage or whatever it is, they're like, I saw this thing in porn. What's the deal? And to me, that's a really important conversation starter. How to watch porn with a level of literacy and the difference between porn and real life and all that stuff. Right. But for the most part, teachers are not allowed to even acknowledge that these kids are watching porn because it's illegal. They don't even engage them. It's shutting down the conversation and it's actually withholding information. We withhold so much information for teenagers um, under the guise of sort of protecting them from sex. It does them a disservice and quite frankly then they have sex and it's unprotected or they have unplanned pregnancies or they get a sexually transmitted infection i mean
2: the truth is i mean if... we're all watching porn anyway exactly so it's like,
0: yeah. and, like do you think
4: that kids should be watching porn like do you think that's a healthy thing for for like you know people discovering sex to do
0: i feel like they turn to porn because they have no other options yeah i would rather see explicit sexual media created for, you know that's age appropriate for these mm-hmm. different age groups and instead of watching these videos you know like I you know I watch these videos with line drawings and diagrams and yeah. I remember walking out of health class and all I could remember was fallopian tubes and which like served no purpose yeah, not all that in, helpful like in right? my <laughs> sex life night, yeah. at <laughs> all like at all so I feel like if we could make sexual explicit media that's age appropriate and kids could see it, you know, with a sex educator in the room to answer questions that would go a long way towards people. Then even being able to then see porn on the internet and be like, Oh, right. But this is like the fantasy. And I saw, I saw what this was like in a, you know, in a more straightforward, educational way so it's different
2: it's interesting just to think about the idea of age-appropriate porn like what what that would or not porn but age-appropriate sexual content for a 13 year old for a 15 year old and you know what those how that would evolve from age to age it's i've just never thought about it
4: you know it is also though if if one were to want to terrify children away from sex and like silence them the other thing is i remember i think the first time i saw like a video of of porn and real sex that I remember literally like turning to my friend and going, I'm never doing that. That is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. It's violent. It's horrifying. That woman is in pain.
2: Well, I remember the first. my first time was like in a room with all these dudes, which is also <laughs> just in a really other, a, a whole other weird way yeah. to see it for the first time. Yeah. Late
0: well, night on you Cinemax. have to. Totally normal over here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like when you watch porn with your peers, It's hard because you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be vaguely interested, but not too interested. Yeah, exactly. Paying attention, but not taking notes, (laughs) laughing it off. Like there's all this weird peer to peer interaction that you're supposed to be sort of looking cool while you're doing it. If you were in a classroom situation, there would be some amount of like, you have to pay attention to this because that's what they, that's what the teacher told you to do. Mm -hmm. And you can giggle about it at lunch, but right now, everyone's gonna just pay attention.
2: Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great great pleasure talking to you.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Our guest has been Tristan Taramino. She's also got a podcast called Sex Out Loud. Now, at the end of last week's show, Allison revealed that she finds herself in a little bit of a sex drought. I'm just we, She are already objecting to this I'm intro. Just,
1: I'm just saying, like, it was just a question for everybody. General I don't interest. know how this turned into Allison's sex drought. Okay, <laughs> Not the only person.
2: At the end of last week's show, we wondered whether you guys were going through <laughs> sex droughts. Uh, one of you called in and gave us this response.
4: So your second question, why is nobody getting laid in New York? I have to say... Truthfully, I have not really had that problem, but my ex-girlfriend says that I am not at all particular to coin a clueless phrase. So um, either <laughs> lower your standards, or I'm wrong. I guess it kind of depends on your preferences.
3: Lower your standards is a brutal way to put it. I would say be less specific or be less picky because sometimes you become surprised with the person who you thought you would never be with turns out to be awesome. So yeah, I think the the gentler, kinder way would be to say, why don't you try something new? Why don't you be so specific?
2: Do you happen to think that most people have too high standards?
3: Oh, no, but I do think that people come up with all these deal breakers that they don't need to have. Like, I think lower your standard is just the wrong way to phrase it because it's acting as though there's like one single gradient on which everyone is ranked. And like, I just don't think that's true. I think it's just that there's a wide array of people. And if you cut out some of the things that you're automatically eliminating people for, then sometimes you discover that you might like someone you didn't think you would.
1: I don't know. Or you just find someone good. I think I was looking for more comfort than I'm currently getting from this conversation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to know I'm not alone. Is that so wrong? No, and you are not alone. This is true. I know so many people that have
2: no sex. And that's it for Sex Lives. A reminder to call us at 646-494-3590. Why don't you call us this time and tell us what... Professions you think are the hottest. Since we're a little bit disappointed in our carpenters, our I am producer not, by <laughs> <I am> not. <laughs> standing by. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you guys next time, and thanks for listening.